Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Over the past few years, chronic lymphocytic leukemia has been revolutionized by targeted oral agents, such as abrutinib, acalabrutinib, and venetoclax. These agents have significantly improved patient outcomes and survival, even in high-risk disease. But providers need to be aware of their unique toxicity profiles. During today's podcast, Dr. Michaela Rice, a board-certified pharmacist, reviews the role of these therapies as first-line agents and provides an overview of important clinical considerations and their associated adverse effects. Chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, is the most common adult leukemia in the United States. Typically, patients are asymptomatic and don't require treatment, but patients who have high-risk disease, and especially patients with high-risk genetics, typically have had poor survival outcomes with traditional chemotherapy and chemoimmunotherapy regimens. With the introduction of targeted therapies, we saw a revolution in outcomes for these patients. And today I'll be specifically presenting on targeted therapies in frontline treatment settings. Following my presentation, you should be able to review chronic lymphocytic leukemia diagnosis and historical treatment options, describe the pharmacology of Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors and venetoclax, and discuss the use of targeted agents as first-line therapy for CLL. As I mentioned, CLL is the most common type of adult leukemia in Western countries, with an estimated 21,000 new cases and 4,000 deaths in 2020. Incidence of CLL increases with age, and there's a t median age at diagnosis of 72 years. It's slightly more common in males compared to females, with a male-to-female ratio of 1.7 to 1. Most patients are diagnosed with CLL when a routine blood count reveals absolute lymphocytosis. Patients will typically be asymptomatic with early stage disease, but about five to 10% of patients will present with typical B symptoms. Our B symptoms include fever, night sweats, weight loss, and fatigue. Patients may also present with lymphadenopathy or splenomegaly. A diagnosis of CLL is made based on the detection of lymphocytosis with typical CLL immunophenotype sustained for three months. Specific genetic alterations provide biomarkers for the prognostication of the clinical course and prediction of response to chemotherapy and targeted therapy. Genetics are typically determined upon diagnosis of CLL, but patients undergo what is called clonal evolution during their disease course, in which they acquire additional genomic alterations that might negatively impact their survival. One of the key genetic alterations that we see are the mutation status of immunoglobulin heavy chain variable gene, or IGHV. Mutations in this gene actually confer a survival benefit to patients because it results in reduced B-cell receptor responsiveness. B-cell receptors are found on B-cells and CLL cells and are involved in signaling pathways that increase CLL proliferation. Patients who have unmutated IGHV have B-cell receptors that respond to many antigens, resulting in overactive B-cell signaling and increased proliferation of CLL cells. The prevalence of unmutated IGHV is more common in patients who have progressive or relapsed refractory CLL. Mutated IGHV is found more often in patients who have early stage CLL disease, and patients with mutated IGHV have B cell receptors that bind more selectively to restricted antigens, 
This results in less active B cell receptor signaling and results in stable CLL or CLL that reduces, that proliferates at a reduced rate. Presented here are some of our other key genetic alterations that we see in CLL. In order of increasing risk, patients who have only a deletion of 13Q tend to have early stage disease and favorable overall outcomes. However, as we discussed, patients can acquire additional genomic alterations that place them into higher risk groups. Deletions in 17P or other mutations that compromise our TP53 tumor suppressor gene result in poor survival outcomes, and those patients typically respond poorly to traditional chemotherapy or radiotherapy regimens. Per current CLO guidelines, treatment should be initiated when patients progress or present with progressive or symptomatic disease. This is patients who have evidence of progressive marrow failure, patients with cytopenias, massive progressive or symptomatic splenomegaly or lymphadenopathy, progressive lymphocytosis, autoimmune complications, which might also present as anemia or thrombocytopenia, symptomatic or functional extranodal involvement, so involvement of CLL in the skin, lungs, or other organs, and then finally B symptoms. The Rye and Binet staging criteria were introduced back in the 70s and 80s, and these criteria group patients into risk categories based on their clinical presentation. Patients who present with anemia or thrombocytopenia are grouped into high-risk groups. The CLL International Prognostic Index is currently the most relevant prognostic score. It was developed in 2016, and it incorporates a weighted grading of five key prognostic factors. This includes TP53 mutational status, IGHV mutational status, the presence of elevated serum beta-2 macroglobulin, which is an, uh, an indicator of CLL protein synthesis, as well as Rye and Binet staging criteria and age greater than 65 years. Based on the number of points scored, patients are grouped into risk categories. And as you can see, these risk categories correlate with specific survival outcomes. Patients with low or intermediate risk disease typically don't warrant treatment, especially at the early stages of their disease whereas patients with high-risk or very high-risk disease typically warrant treatment. This brings us to our first audience response question. Which of the following would indicate a poor prognosis CLL? Mutated immunoglobulin heavy chain variable gene, mutation in TP53, isolated deletion of 13Q, or trisomy 12? You can take some time to read through this and submit your answer via poll everywhere. As we're seeing answers come in, I would agree with the majority here. The correct answer would be mutations in TP53. Mutations in TP53 confer poor overall survival and a resistance to traditional chemotherapy or radiotherapy regimens. Mutations in TP53 are found across multiple different types of cancer diagnoses and are almost always associated with unfavorable outcomes. A would be incorrect because it's actually the unmutated immunoglobulin heavy chain variable gene that confers a poor survival benefit, and this is related to uh, the increased B cell receptor responsiveness with unmutated IGHB. Answer C would be incorrect because patients who only have the deletion of 13Q tend to have favorable survival outcomes. And then D would be incorrect because trisomy 12 is an intermediate prognostic factor for CLL. I'm going to review the historical approach to treatment for CLL briefly here. Back in the 1950s, steroids and alkylating agents, including chlorambucil, were standard of care for CLL. Chlorambucil is an agent that has a favorable toxicity profile, but typically has had poor response rates for patients with CLL. 
In the 1980s, we saw the introduction of fludarabine, a nucleoside analog that had better response rates compared to chlorambucil, but that was associated with significant adverse effects. In 2000, we saw the combination of fludarabine plus cyclophosphamide, which again resulted in better outcomes. And we also saw the introduction of bendamustine therapy, which is another alkylating therapy. Throughout the 2000s, we began to see combinations of chemotherapy with some of our anti-CD20 antibodies, such as rituximab and abinutuzumab. These agents, when combined with chemotherapy, are termed chemoimmunotherapy. And chemoimmunotherapy became the mainstay of care as it resulted in improved outcomes for patients. This is true until about the mid-2010s, when we saw the introduction of our tar targeted oral therapies. Abrutinib was the first successful targeted therapy. It's a BTK inhibitor, and it was approved for use in the relapse refractory setting, and shortly after for use in patients with deletions in 17P in 2014. Its approval was extended to frontline treatment in 2016. The PI3K inhibitor Idealisib was also approved in 2014, but its outcomes have been less striking, and it's associated with a variety of significant adverse effects that limit its use. For this reason, it's typically used for patients who are resistant to or who have failed other targeted therapies, and I won't be discussing it in detail today. In 2016, the BCL2 antagonist venetoclax was approved for use for patients with high-risk genetic disease, so mutations in 17P, or deletions of 17P. Its approval was extended to include frontline therapy for patients with CLL in 2019. And then finally, a second-generation BTK inhibitor, acalabrutinib, was approved in 2019 for use in CLL. Over the past two years, we've really seen a whole plethora of trials that look at combinations of targeted therapy with one another, as well as with immunotherapies, and the results of these trials have been promising. In my presentation today, I'm going to be focusing on our two brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitors, abrutinib and acalabrutinib, as well as the BCL2 antagonist venetoclax. The brutin tyrosine kinase is a member of the TEC family of protein kinases, and it's an essential component of the B-cell receptor signaling pathway that I mentioned earlier. Activation of this pathway, as we had discussed, it contributes to survival of the CLL cells as well as proliferation by increasing transcription. BTK also regulates signaling and functioning of certain chemokine receptors that affect B-cell migration and tissue homing. Ibrutinib is an oral agent that binds covalently to an active site in BTK, inactivating that B-cell receptor pathway and reducing the proliferation of CLL cells. One of the first trials to look at abrutinib for patients in the frontline treatment setting was the Resonate 2 trial. This trial included 269 patients aged 65 years or older with previously untreated CLL or SLL. Patients were randomized to receive abrutinib at 420 milligrams by mouth daily until progression or toxicity or chlorambucil monotherapy for up to 12 cycles. At the time the study was designed, chlorambucil monotherapy was a standard of care regimen for patients who were unfit to receive our more intensive chemotherapy regimens. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Looking at baseline characteristics, uh, the groups were well-balanced at baseline and our age and gender rates match what we would expect for a CLL population. About 45% of patients had a high-risk disease based on rise staging, about 45% had unmutated IGHV, and about 20% had deletions in 11Q, which is another high-risk genetic alteration. Patients who had deletions in 17P or TP53 mutations were excluded from this study as they had already demonstrated that abrutinib conferred a survival benefit to those patients compared to chlorambucil through subgroup analyses of prior trials. 
Looking at the results of this study, uh, the initial results demonstrated a statistically significant benefit with abrutinib compared to chlorambucil at the initial two-year follow-up. Presented here, I, I show the five-year follow-up data that were published just earlier this year. And as you can see, there was a dramatic difference in progression-free and overall survival between the groups that was statistically significant. 58% of the patients who were on abrutinib were still on therapy at a median follow-up of 60 months and 41% had discontinued treatment. The trial did allow for crossover between the two arms. So patients who were on chlorambucil could switch over to the abrutinib arm if they progressed on chlorambucil therapy. Of the 133 patients who were on chlorambucil, 96 had progressed disease, and 75 of those patients did switch over to abrutinib. So when we're considering that, and then looking at the overall survival, which was analyzed based on an intent to treat population, it's impressive that we're still seeing such a drastic difference, even when we did have abrutinib use as a second-line option for the patients in the chlorambucil group. This demonstrates that abrutinib really provides a benefit to patients when it's used as that first-line option for patients. One of the limitations of this study is that chlorambucil monotherapy tends to be associated with poorer outcomes in comparison to some of the chemoimmunotherapy regimens that have become more of a standard of care for patients. The A041202 study looked at abrutinib with or without rituximab compared to bendamustine plus rituximab. Bendamustine plus rituximab is a regimen that is still used for elderly or less fit patients, but is associated with improved outcomes compared to chlorambucil monotherapy, which we saw in the previous study. Patients were randomized to receive abrutinib, abrutinib plus rituximab, or bendamustine plus rituximab. Rituximab was administered for six cycles, and bendamustine was administered as 90 milligrams per meter squared on days one and two of a 28-day cycle for six cycles. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Again, the baseline characteristics were well-balanced between groups, and we saw age and gender rates that match what would be expected. 54% of patients were of high-risk disease based on rise staging, and about 60% of patients had unmutated IGHV. This study did include patients with deletions of 17P, or mutations in TP53. So when abrutinib was compared to bendamustine rituximab, again, a more effective regimen than chlorambucil, we still saw a significant difference in progression-free survival that favored abrutinib. The authors noted that this benefit was most pronounced for patients who had high-risk genetics, so unmutated IGHV or deletions of 17P. The authors also noted that there was no benefit provided when rituximab was added onto abrutinib compared to abrutinib alone. There was no difference between the three groups with regard to overall survival. The E1912 study looked at 529 patients who were 70 years of age or younger with previously untreated CLL. So this is our first study looking at use of abrutinib in the frontline setting for patients who are fit and able to receive more intensive chemoimmunotherapy regimens. Patients were randomized to receive abrutinib plus rituximab or fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab, which is our standard of care chemoimmunotherapy regimen for those more fit patients. Patients in the abrutinib group received one cycle of abrutinib, followed by six cycles of combined therapy, and then continued on abrutinib until disease progression or toxicity. Patients in the FCR group received therapy for six cycles. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Here we can see that the mean age of patients was 57 years. About 40-45% of patients had a high-risk disease by rise staging, and about 70% of patients had unmutated IGHV. Again, patients with deletions of 17P or mutations in TP53 
were excluded from the study because these patients have historically had poor survival outcomes with FCR. Here I present the results of the E1912 trial. And we can see that abrutinib plus rituximab was superior to FCR with regard to progression-free and overall survival. And this difference was statistically significant. I think the overall survival rate that we see with the abrutinib plus rituximab group is impressive at 98.8% at three years. And this is likely in part a reflection of the population of patients that were included in the study. The overall survival that we see with FCR is comparable to historical trials with that regimen. I think that follow-up data on this study would be useful for us because with FCR, one of the things that we worry about is long-term adverse effects. Patients with FCR can develop secondary myelodysplastic syndrome or therapy-related acute leukemia. So I'd be interested to see what we see years out from this study's initiation. So now that we've established that abrutinib is an effective frontline treatment option for CLL, I want to take some time to discuss the management of toxicities associated with abrutinib therapy. As you can see here, before abrutinib treatment, we have this slowly increasing leukocytosis. After treatment with abrutinib is initiated, we see a transient spike in leukocytosis as the CLL cells are redistributed from the tissue into circulation. Over time, as patients achieve remission, we'll see all counts start to normalize. Abrutinib therapy does not offer a cure for CLL, so patients who are on abrutinib must continue therapy to continue having a favorable response. Abrutinib has historically uh, been discontinued in trials and even more so in real-world data as a result of adverse events such as those included here. Some of the adverse events that we see are bleeding, cardiac arrhythmias, infection, musculoskeletal complaints, diarrhea, rash, hypertension, and pneumonitis. I don't have time to discuss all of these today, so I'll be focusing on the three here, bleeding, arrhythmias, and infection. But it's important to recognize that all of these could be related to abrutinib therapy and to provide appropriate management to patients so that they're able to continue on therapy. Clinical trial data reports a risk of minor bleeding in up to 66% of patients and major bleeding in up to 6% of patients. And the incidence of bleeding is higher in real-world populations. Risk for major bleeding is especially increased for patients who are on concurrent antiplatelet or anticoagulant agents. Bleeding is due to this role of BTK as well as some of the other tyrosine protein kinases that are inhibited by abrutinib and their role in platelet aggregation. For this reason, patients on abrutinib should have their therapy briefly interrupted prior to surgeries to prevent bleeding. Patients should also have their abrutinib therapy interrupted in the event of a bleed, and patients can be provided with platelet transfusions to help restore hemostasis. Atrial fibrillation is the most common abrutinib-related cardiac arrhythmia, and is seen in up to 10% of patients on top of what we would generally expect in the population. It's typically seen in the first three months of therapy, with a median time to onset of 2.8 months. As we're considering these two adverse effects of abrutinib, it's important to involve hematology and cardiology teams upfront and to individualize care plans for patients, depending on their specific risk factors and situations. When patients develop a cardiac arrhythmia, abrutinib therapy will often be interrupted briefly so that we can see whether a patient's atrial fibrillation resolves off therapy. If it does, we may introduce abrutinib at the same dose or at a lower dose. And if it does not resolve, but we wish to continue abrutinib therapy, we'll implement rate or rhythm control. With this, it's important to note some of the drug interactions with our commonly used agents and abrutinib therapy. I'll be discussing this a little bit later as well. 
For patients who have chas vast scores that put them at risk for strokes and other events, we do want to use anticoagulation, but it's generally recommended that warfarin is avoided as it was not included in clinical trials. We typically use agents such as rivaroxaban or apixaban for patients with close monitoring. Infection risk is also increased with patients on abrutinib therapy, especially within the first three months of therapy. Over time, this risk decreases. It's important to note that CLL itself can put patients at an increased risk for infection, so we don't typically want to hold abrutinib therapy except in the case of very severe infections. It's also important to note that some of our antifungal agents will have dose reductions required when used in combination with abrutinib therapy. This brings us to our second audience response question. AK is a 66-year-old male with a past medical history significant for hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and type 2 diabetes. A little over a month ago, he was diagnosed with high-risk CLL and started on abrutinib plus rituximab. At follow-up, the patient is found to have new-onset atrial fibrillation with a CHADS VASC of 3. The team suspects that abrutinib may be the cause. Which of the following is true when considering this patient case? Abrutinib should be permanently discontinued. Warfarin is the anticoagulant of choice for this patient. Abrutinib dose should be reduced if the patient is started on diltiazem. Or switching to an alternative BTK inhibitor would not benefit this patient. All right, so I would again agree with the majority of, of uh, people who responded here. A would be incorrect. Um, in some cases, you may need to permanently discontinue abrutinib therapy, but if it's possible to manage the patient on abrutinib therapy and the patient wishes to continue for treatment of their disease, ideally we would continue abrutinib therapy, just possibly at a reduced dose. B would be incorrect because warfarin is not our anticoagulant of choice for these patients. We would typically use one of our DOAC agents. C is the correct answer. For patients on abrutinib, we do have to reduce our dose by 50% when a patient is started on diltiazem. And then D would be incorrect. Switching to an alternative BTK inhibitor could possibly benefit our patient, and I'll be discussing this over the next few slides. Our second-generation BTK inhibitors have the same mechanism of action of abrutinib, binding to the same point in the BTK of our B-cell receptor signaling pathways. But these uh, additional second-generation BTK inhibitors have reduced off-target effects compared to abrutinib and bind more potently and specifically to that BTK. Some of these agents include acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. Acalabrutinib was approved for use in CLL or SLL in 2019, and xanabrutinib is currently undergoing clinical trials for use in these populations. The ELEVATE-TN study was the primary study looking at acalabrutinib with or without abinutuzumab compared to chlorambucil abinutuzumab for patients who had previously untreated CLL. So it included patients 65 years of age or older or 18 years or older with comorbidities or impaired renal function with previously untreated CLL. Patients in the acalabrutinib group received 100 milligrams by mouth twice daily. And in the acalabrutinib plus abinutuzumab group, we saw the addition of abinutuzumab for six cycles of combined therapy. In the chlorambucil plus abinutuzumab group, we saw chlorambucil plus abinutuzumab administered for a total of six cycles. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Again, our baseline characteristics were well-balanced and our age and gender rates matched what are expected. About 64 to 75% of patients had CLL-IPI high-risk disease, whereas about 12% of patients had very high-risk disease by CLL-IPI. About 60% of patients had unmutated IGHV, and again, we saw patients with 17P deletions or mutations in TP53 included. 
At two years, acalabrutinib plus abinutuzumab resulted in a statistically improved progression-free survival compared to chlorambucil plus abinutuzumab. And these results expanded across subgroup analyses. Again, like with our other trials, follow-up data will likely give us a better answer with regard to overall survival outcomes. Here I present some of the higher-grade bleeding and atrial fibrillation data from each of the trials that I presented so far, as well as the discontinuation rates that we saw for adverse drug events specifically on trial. When we look at these, there's no clear difference between our three abrutinib trials and our acalabrutinib trial. But it's important to note that in real-world data, we've seen much higher rates of discontinuation for adverse drug events. We're still in the early stages of exploring acalabrutinib therapy, and so I think with time, we'll have more data to effectively compare acalabrutinib to abrutinib with regard to adverse event profiles and discontinuation rates. This study looked at patients who had had adverse events on abrutinib therapy, and then assessed whether or not that adverse event resolved when the patient was switched to acalabrutinib therapy. Of the events they looked at, 72% did not recur when a patient was switched from abrutinib to acalabrutinib, demonstrating that there may be a benefit in switching patients from abrutinib to acalabrutinib when they're no longer able to tolerate abrutinib therapy. Here I present the standard dosing for abrutinib and acalabrutinib, as well as some package insert dose modifications recommended when used with CYP3A4 inhibitors or inducers. Abrutinib and acalabrutinib are both metabolized via the CYP3A4 pathway. One key difference between the two drugs is that acalabrutinib requires an acidic stomach pH for absorption. So it's recommended that patients avoid PPIs and take acalabrutinib separated from H2RAs or antacids whenever possible. That wraps up our discussion on the Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and I'll now move on to focus on our BCL2 antagonist, venetoclax. The BCL2 protein is overexpressed in patients with CLL, and this promotes survival of CLL cells by sequestering pro-apoptotic proteins, preventing apoptosis of the CLL cell. Venetoclax antagonizes BCL2 by binding to those proteins and releasing those pro-apoptotic proteins back into the cell. This allows for those pro-apoptotic proteins to initiate the apoptotic process and results in direct cytotoxic activity. This can lead to tumor lysis syndrome. Tumor lysis syndrome occurs when cells release their contents into the bloodstream, and it may progress to acute kidney injury, cardiac arrhythmias, seizures, and death when not appropriately managed. Patients with CLL are grouped into TLS risk categories prior to initiation of venetoclax to help define management strategies. This is linked to the size of the lymph nodes as well as the absolute lymphocyte count. Shown here is the dosing schedule and dosing ramp-up strategy that we use for venetoclax in patients with CLL. This will differ depending on which type of leukemia you're treating. But in CLL, we see weekly dose increases for uh, five weeks before we reach the dose that will have patients continue on for the duration of treatment. There are also several notable drug interactions with venetoclax through the CYP3A4 pathways, as well as PGP. It's important especially to consider these uh, interactions when we're starting venetoclax therapy. And during the initiation and ramp-up phase, it's generally recommended that these agents are avoided, if at all possible. The CLL14 study compared venetoclax plus abinutuzumab to chlorambucil plus abinutuzumab. It included 432 patients with coexisting conditions and previously untreated CLL. In the venetoclax plus abinutuzumab arm, Abinipituzumab was administered for the first six cycles. Venetoclax was initiated on cycle one, day 22, with a five-week dose ramp-up 
that I mentioned previously, and venetoclax was continued for 12 cycles. In the chlorambucil plus abinutuzumab arm, abinutuzumab was continued for the first six cycles, and chlorambucil was also administered for 12 cycles. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Our groups were matched at baseline, and about 20% of our patients were in that high TLS risk category. About 60% of patients had unmutated IGHB, and about 10% of patients had mutated TP53. In comparing our results here, um, we can see that venetoclax plus abinutuzumab resulted in a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival at two years. The authors also noted that there was no statistically significant or really even observable difference in the rates of TLS between the two groups, demonstrating that when we're monitoring closely and using an appropriate strategy for venetoclax initiation, this can largely be prevented. This brings us to our third audience response question. Which of the following is true about venetoclax use in patients with CLL? A, venetoclax binds to and inhibits the B-cell receptor signaling pathway. B, the dose of venetoclax is increased each day until the maximum dose is reached. C, venetoclax and abinutuzumab significantly improved overall survival in the CLL-14 trial. Or D, venetoclax has direct cytotoxic activity that may result in tumor lysis syndrome. I would again agree with the majority here that the correct answer is answer D. A would be incorrect. This is actually the mechanism of action of our BTK inhibitors, which inhibit the B-cell receptor signaling pathway. And then B would be incorrect, as the dose of venetoclax in CLL is increased each week. There are other cancer diagnoses in which we see a daily dose escalation, but that is not used in CLL. C would be incorrect, uh, because we did not see a statistically significant difference in overall survival in the CLL-14 trial, although we did see a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival. And then D would be correct, as venetoclax does have that direct cytotoxic activity that can result in tumor lysis syndrome. So now we come to the question, how are targeted therapies used in practice, and specifically in the frontline setting? Here I present a treatment algorithm that's used here um, that kind of provides us with a flow diagram of how we can treat patients with CLL in the frontline treatment setting. For patients with inactive disease, we typically don't need to treat unless disease uh, progresses or patients begin to present with symptoms. For patients with active disease, we have to first look at the deletion of 17P or TP53 mutational status. Those patients who have those mutations have highest risk disease and are better off to receiving our BTK inhibitors with or without an anti-CD20 agent or venetoclax plus abinutuzumab. Our traditional chemotherapy and chemoimmunotherapy regimens are not preferred for these patients. If patients do not have that mutation, we then must consider whether or not they are a fit patient or a young patient. If they are, we then look at our mutations of IGHV. If patients have mutated IGHV, meaning they have disease that has a favorable survival outcome at baseline, we can treat patients with a brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitor, again with or without an anti-CD20 agent, venetoclax plus abinutuzumab, or FCR, because FCR does have better efficacy in those patients with mutated IGHV. And FCR could potentially result in prolonged uh, efficacy outcomes without the continued administration of therapy. For patients who have unmutated IGHV, we would typically use a brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitor with or without an anti-CD20 agent or venetoclax plus abinutuzumab, as those patients have poor outcomes with traditional chemotherapy. And then for patients who are not fit, we'll tend to gravitate towards brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitors with or without anti-CD20 agents, venetoclax plus abinutuzumab, 
or abinutuzumab monotherapy. In summary, targeted therapies are revolutionizing treatment of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. New treatment options are combination therapies of current options are currently under investigation. While convenient and effective compared to chemoimmunotherapy, targeted therapies are accompanied by unique adverse events that can require careful management. And finally, targeted therapies are often preferred frontline treatment options, especially in patients with deletions in 17P, mutated TB53, or other high-risk genetic features. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.